Do concerns over human rights abuses in Iran complicate solidarity efforts in the wake of the January 2nd assassination of Iranian Lieutenant General Qasem Soleimani? What meaningful actions can the Canadian government and the Canadian people take to ameliorate the situation for an Iranian population threatened with U.S. military violence? Is Trump being manipulated by players in and around Washington into a military confrontation with Iran? Does the Iranian government, if sufficiently provoked, have the ability to bring down the global economy? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we explore the ramped up tensions between the United States and the Islamic Republic of Iran in the wake of a drone assassination of one of the Islamic Republic's most highly respected military commanders and the prospects for another Persian Gulf War 17 years after the start of Operation Iraqi Freedom. We first hear the viewpoint of Alan Wise, a Canadian of Iranian extraction and intense critic of the theocratic government there. We next hear from Canadian peace activist and organizer Glenn Michaelchuk about Canada's role in the current crisis and its responsibility to reverse the tide. Finally, in our final half hour, the noted journalist and geopolitical analyst Pepe Escobar brings us his assessment of what is driving U.S. policy toward Iran and how Iran has the potential to strike back. On this week's program, Persian peril, the assassination of Qasem Soleimani and the prospect of war with Iran. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 10th, 2020. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, unoccupied Anishinaabega King, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of Nahiwak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Iran has been giving jobs and temporary shelter to many Afghan citizens, particularly those from Herat, people who have absolutely nothing left after the horrendous U.S.-NATO occupation of the country. I worked in Afghanistan and I saw tremendous lines in front of the Iranian consulate in Herat. Iran has even been deeply involved in Latin America, helping building social housing in Venezuela, Evo's Bolivia, and elsewhere. And now, recently, it began moving closer and closer to two of Washington's arch enemies, China and Russia. Therefore, it has been decided in the annals of Washington and the Pentagon, Iran has to be stopped, destroyed. That comes from the article, Iran's hero has fallen and now the world is an even more dangerous place, by Andrei Volchik, posted January 8th, first published by New Eastern Outlook. The truth is, since 2016, Trump has proven to be just another mediocre American president to be neutered by Israel, the IC, and the neocons, many of whom he brought into his administration. He has ceded his authority to the likes of Pompeo and Pence and has proven to be easily manipulated, unable to analyze when he is being played, including by his own family. 
While others make excuses that he is being lied to, it is time for him to take adult responsibility for his decisions. With an inappropriately verbose personality, Trump has proven to have no backbone. We now know that he also has no honor, no courage, and no heart as he joins GW and Obama in the ranks of the Presidential War Criminals Club. That comes from the article, No Shame, No Honor, No Heart, by Rennie Parsons, post-January 8th. Tehran reports that the 15 missiles which hit the U.S. Ain al-Assad military base were not intercepted by the U.S. Army's radar system, which, if confirmed, reflects a weakness on the part of the U.S. defense system. But this is only the tip of the iceberg. The unspoken truth is that several of America's military installations in the Middle East are sitting ducks, and this is recognized by U.S. military analysts. U.S. military facilities in the Middle East are vulnerable, including U.S. CENTCOM's forward base at the Al-Udid U.S. Air Force Base in Qatar, which is de facto located in enemy territory. That comes from the introduction under the headline video, Trump Calls Upon Iran, We Should Work Together, by Professor Michel Chosodovsky, posted January 8th. Since the 1979 revolution, when the Iranian leadership stated unequivocally its commitment to the liberation of the Palestinian people, Israel has been antagonistic towards Iran. It has worked closely with the U.S. elite to undermine Iran on a variety of fronts. It is their common enmity towards Iran that has now helped to forge a bond between the Israeli and Saudi elites. It is this struggle for power, Saudi and Israeli elites on one side, and Iran and some of its allies on the other, which has exacerbated the potential for a huge conflict in the region. Needless to say, the U.S. role in this power struggle as protector and defender of Israel and Saudi Arabia against Iran has heightened the danger of war as never before. That comes from the article On the Brink of War by Dr. Chandra Muzaffar, posted January 7th. If Tehran ever decided to shut down the Strait of Hormuz, call it the nuclear option, that would trigger a world depression as trillions of dollars of derivatives imploded. The Bank for International Settlements counts about $600 billion in total derivatives. Not really. Swiss sources say there are at least 1.2 quadrillion, with some placing it at 2.5 quadrillion. That would imply a derivatives market 28 times the world's GDP. That comes from the article, Financial End Option Will Settle Trump's Oil War, by Pepe Escobar, posted January 7th, originally published at Asia Times. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The year 2020 got off to a shocking start on Thursday, January 2nd, when Iran's Quds Force commander, Qasem Soleimani, was assassinated by a drone strike on the direction of the U.S. president. The action was described by the Pentagon as a decisive defensive action to protect U.S. personnel abroad on the basis this would deter future Iranian attack plans. 
Iran's supreme leader vowed severe revenge on those responsible for the death of the country's top military commander. Tensions have been ratcheted up higher than in any time in recent years. Could this incident escalate into a full-blown regional, if not global, conflict? To start this exploration, the Global Research News Hour reached out to a Canadian with familial ties to Iran. Alan Wise left Iran as a political refugee 32 years ago. After a two-year stay in Turkey, he ended up in Canada. Alan Wise has been an intense critic of the Iranian government. Here he talks about the difficulties of getting accurate information out of Iran in the midst of the current crisis. The information that comes out of Iran, I mean, uh, people are very uh, cautious and reluctant about saying what it is. There is a there is an air of paranoia. So the information that comes out is always um, uh, very cautious, very limited, and people are afraid to speak their mind. Uh, rightly or wrongly, they're afraid that uh, their conversations are being tapped into, you know, um, and usually uh, is uh, uh, amalgamated or kind of like, you know, wrapped in euphemisms and storytelling. And people try to make their friends and family understand that the situation is not um, very good through uh, making uh, references to uh, other stories or uh, referring to um, to uh, characters or um, sort of historical uh, characters, mythological characters, and comparing them with the um, the, um, the people in power, basically, to kind of be able to mask uh, the information that they're um, relaying to the world outside. Speaking in code, is that what you're talking about? Um, Practically speaking in codes, because uh, um, the the regime is, uh, as I said, uses draconian me- uh, measures to uh, to suppress uh, public opinion. Um, as uh, you are aware, and you might be aware, um, about a month ago, there were uh, riots in majority of the cities in Iran, uh, and over 1,500 people were killed by the government forces just because they were... Uh, unhappy with the rise in the uh, price of gas and the worsening economic situation. So uh, the regime is very, um, very good at uh, putting down um, opposition uh, with an iron fist. Well, there, uh, with the, the, the assassination of this uh, high-ranking general, mm-hmm. I mean, it did bring uh, millions of people to the yeah. streets. Yeah. So it does seem as if, uh, I mean, whatever uh, the government uh, may have been done, it, it does seem to have sparked a, a kind of unity among yeah. many Iranians. Unfortunately, uh, it, it seems like that. Uh, that is not to say that the, uh, the government of Iran inside Iran does not have support. Certainly they have their base of support, the, um, uh, the conservative and the neoconservative elements within the regime. They do have their base of support. They're, uh, uh, they have a wide, I would say, base of support, uh, popular support in Iran. But uh, at the same time, there are um, signs of growing discontent with the government in Iran. Um, Iranian um, sort of society is a very stratified society, and uh, there are differences, uh, many, many social economic differences. And uh, the current regime has been uh, able to bank on uh, 
uh, a segment of the society that are historically been undermined um, economically, socially, and uh, have been able to uh, maintain a base for themselves within that population and uh, uh, the more traditional religious element. What are your thoughts about uh, what the Canadian government should be doing, what they should be saying to Mm -hmm. ameliorate the situation for all concerned? Um, Certainly, the first question, at least in my mind, would be whether or not Canadian government can do anything. And there are things the Canadian government can do, and uh, that is just basically to um, uh, react and to act on the popular sentiments around the desire in Canada not to enter into another war, to respond to that, certainly. Whether or not if there is a popular um, drive towards reestablishing that diplomatic relations with Iran, that is something that uh, uh, we haven't seen much popular support for in Canada, uh, and therefore the government hasn't really been pursuing that. And the third element, again, going back to um, the um, the power structure within the Middle East and immediately within Gulf, uh, you look at the actors there. Uh, the main actors are Iran, Saudi Arabia, Russia, and United States. And whether or not Canada has any sway or any influence in that, that is another element that the government of Canada should be thinking about. Well, what about issues like you know, international law? I mean, whatever you might think about the mm-hmm. Iranian government, I Absolutely. mean, there is a, a rule of law, that's a phrase we keep hearing, mm-hmm. and assassinating another leader mm-hmm. on, on foreign soil with no declar- formal declaration of war, mm-hmm. that, that is a, a violation of international law. I mean, cannot the Canadian government at least formally condemn such a, an action by the Trump administration? Um, I, again, I, I think... Uh, b- it falls under the uh, you know auspices of um, sort of legal interpretation of whether or not this was something that uh, Canadian government wants to react to it, and whether or not it's uh, the aftermath of such declaration would lead to certain vulnerabilities for Canadian government as well. Uh, do remember, Canadian government does not have a uh, trade deficit with Iran. Uh, there is there is not much that's happening economically with Iran. So, but eighty five percent of our day to day exchange, economic exchange, is with our cousins to the south and with the United States. So, I don't fault the Canadian government for not wanting to make uh, any comments about it, uh, being concerned over the fact that any comment of such strength would undermine their economic ex- uh, exchange. An interaction with the United States and therefore um, not being seen as a wise step to take. So I understand that. Uh, morally, however, um, there are so many things that we as people should do as people of the world and by extension our government, the Canadian government, that is to constantly uh, take the Iranian government um, to uh, to the court court of public opinion around the world and make sure that all the things that the Iranian government is doing, aside from what they are doing outside of the borders of Iran, but what they are doing to the population of Iran, what they are doing to the minorities, what they are doing to women, what they are doing to children's rights. Um, uh, As I said, um, um, definitely there is no mourning uh, amongst the uh, uh, political opposition for uh, 
having uh, having seen Mr. Uh, uh, what, what was his name, uh, Soleimani, being dispatched. This this man was uh, was uh, somebody who was really raining terror on not only the uh, population of Iraq or Syria, but also on Iranian population through you know his involvement with the besiege or the popular mobilization. Um, I'm not trying to condone an an act that may have been um, seen uh, under international law as an illegal act by a sovereign state against another sovereign state. What I'm saying is that um, uh, there's two sides to a story, and uh, Mr. Soleimani was not an angel by any stretch of imagination. Well, there are those who say that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, right? For sure, for sure. But do remember, uh, proxy wars that Iran has been fighting is something not new to the Islamic government. These, these were being practiced by the previous regime as well. Um, proxy wars are poor man's you know, uh, nuclear mm-hmm. weapon, practically. And uh, so, um, but do you see nothing with regard to what yeah. the U.S.'s actions? Yeah. I mean, it's not entirely yeah. constructive. Uh, oh, absolutely. So, Abs- I mean, is there not some absolutely sense that, there uh, is know, a, principles there, should override economic considerations? Well, I mean, uh, there there's a difference between us wanting to see something like what is ought to be and rather um, versus what is what. Uh, President Trump did by no stretch of imagination is legal or moral or uh, uh, should be should be condoned. It, uh, he basically stepped out of all international norms. Um, I don't think there are many people within the U.S. administration, as we see um, on TV and we hear on the, on the news, that are uh, happy about what has been happening since he he gained his tenure as the president. And if the um, American public is so opposed to what's been done under his administration. Well, 2020 is their chance to uh, uh, make sure that he will he won't be elected. Okay. Well, Alan Weiss, uh, a uh, Iranian uh, Canadian, uh, a long time uh, working and living in Winnipeg. I want to thank you very much for sharing your insights with our listeners. Thank you, Michael. Right now, we're joined by Glenn Michaelchuk. He is chair of Peace Alliance Winnipeg and the treasurer for the Canadian Peace Alliance. And uh, he is one of the people helping to organize uh, uh, for a pan-Canadian day of action uh, to uh, stop the attacks on Iran. Glenn Michaelchuk, welcome. Maybe you could give us a a few details about this uh, event that's being planned here in Winnipeg. Yes, uh, Saturday, uh, January 11th at noon, from about noon to 1 p.m., there's going to be a demonstration outside the consular offices of the U.S. Embassy here. Um, Those are located in uh, in an office tower at Portage and Main. So the demonstration is going to be taking place uh, on the sidewalk out in front uh, at uh, really the corner of Portage and Notre Dame. So we encourage everyone to come down who has um, has been watching these events and is outraged, as many people are, about how close um, a war broke out, almost how close it was that war broke out. But, of course, the situation remains tense. And, of course, now there's been the, uh, the air crash in, in Iran that, in one way or another, is, is directly connected with, with the events that, that began with the assassination. And, and the general... Uh, 
attack on Iran uh, for these many years. What is the specific ask of the Canadian government in light of these events? Well, the Canadian government has been uh, working uh, in lockstep with uh, the United States. Uh, first of all, uh, it's been demonizing Iran, and it has for a number of years now uh, been taking the same position as the United States to, on, on Iran, uh, which is uh, support for sanctions, declaring uh, the Iranian government to be a so-called terrorist government. Uh, Canada closed down its embassy. Uh, that was an initiative of the Harper government. And that was, again, all part of this ramping up this rhetoric against Iran. And in the current situation, uh, Canada has supported the U.S. I mean, uh, it was the Minister of Defense who basically said, uh, brought Canada very close to full agreement with what what was done by the U.S. in assassinating the Iranian general. And so Canada needs to begin to distance itself from U.S. policies and to speak out uh, about the injustices uh, of, of the policies of the United States. So we are asking Canada to um, not, not support the United States in its aggression against Iran and to withdraw its troops from the NATO training mission in Iraq because these are all elements of the kind of imposition of Western, uh, Western interests on not only Iraq, but Iran, um, Syria. Canada has been very deeply involved in all, in all those. Hmm. Now, I, I did speak to someone earlier, and uh, basically to paraphrase, he sees that uh, solidarity – with the Iranian people, I mean, there's two fronts. On the one hand, we don't want to see uh, uh, a, a conflict that will get a lot of people killed. On the other hand, uh, there's they. You mentioned that there's these uh, the, the specter of human rights abuses that uh, have been dogging the Iranian people for some time. That's the argument. So, you know, how how does the uh, the Canadian peace movement navigate those realities, especially in light of the, uh, the the rationale leveled for placing sanctions on Iran? Well, Iran has been sanctioned for a number of reasons. Number one, it was it was pursuing nuclear uh, nuclear invest n- nuclear energy, and every country has the right to scientifically pursue whatever uh, whatever it wants to. Uh, there's no right to, that only certain countries can have. Um, nuclear science and nuclear technology and sometimes nuclear weapons. So whatever Iran decides to do is the same as any other country. It has the right to pursue whatever, whatever knowledge it wants to acquire. Um, the question of human rights has become, um, it's not only the question has been leveled against Iran, these become convenient issues to demonize countries. Uh, the same has been said about Syria, the same has been said about um, Iran, Iraq, in Iraq leading up to the, uh, to the uh, Gulf War, uh, the same things were said about Iraq. So these are, the question of human rights has become a, a, a political weapon. And for that reason, I mean, the peace movement has not supported uh, the Responsibility Protect movement, which itself is, is part of that uh, interventionist movement. So when human rights of any uh, are being leveled, any human rights charges are being leveled against any country, uh, you have to look at why and 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 for what reasons these these things are being leveled. Almost in every situation, these are being leveled in order to justify some kind of action against those countries. So if we want to talk about human rights, I mean. And it would be fine if the people who are saying that Iran is the problem of human rights. I'm talking about the people who are making those charges. 
uh, not that I, I say that I agree with those things, but if those people are saying that there's problems of human rights in Iran, why are they silent about human rights in, in the United States or Canada? Canada still has not uh, properly dealt with, with the question of its uh, First Nations peoples. The United States, I mean, uh, I mean it's rampant abuse of, of, of human rights and other countries as well. Uh, but why are these countries exempt from this? So that's why I say the question of human rights is raised in a political matter. The question of human rights in any country has to be dealt with by the people in that country. Mm. And not only the question of human rights, the question of democracy, because that's sometimes also uh, raised as an issue that a country is undemocratic or a country is under some um, uh, a, a regime. The words are used. Uh, that's how Iran is always described. It's a, as a regime. They don't describe the U.S. as a regime. So they're very suspect when people use these issues. But ultimately, it is the, the people of every country, their own country, who have to have to deal with these questions. Many years ago, uh, Malala Joya uh, toured Canada. Uh, from Afghanistan. From Afghanistan. She was at that time a member of the parliament of Afghanistan. And she toured the country on the basis of an initiative put together by the Canadian Peace Alliance. And she uh, disagreed with the NATO uh, presence in, in Afghanistan. She disagreed with that mission about bringing uh, dem democracy to Afghanistan. And her position was is that the people of Afghanistan have to decide their future. Mm. And that's true of people uh, everywhere. So other countries deciding other people's futures. I think uh, it's, it's, it's a feature of this politics of Western arrogance mm. and Western exceptionalism. And, and the target is always these other countries where the West is trying to cause trouble and uh, control the situation to their own interests. Glenn, I've noticed a lot of the media coverage around this uh, crisis that we've seen over the last uh, little while. And it, it seems to, the scope is very limited. I mean, the, the, the major concern a couple of days ago is that the what, what does this uh, assassination and the Iraqis uh, just saying, you know, we're, you know, get your troops out of our country. And the, the main concern seemed to be the welfare of the, uh, the brave men and women of the Canadian military uh, who are you know, being forced to leave as well. So what, 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 is your, what are your thoughts with the Canadian Peace Alliance thinking in terms of how to uh, reconcile this uh, sort of fractured uh, media messaging that we're getting from the, the media and, and not getting into the, the, the deeper issues that we really need to confront? Uh, well, that's a real problem with the mainstream media. It's actually part of um, this whole uh, drive for war and domination. Well, first of all, the question is never asked why Canadian troops are in Iraq. They're there because uh, Iraq was destroyed by the, um, by the two wars that were waged against it. And it was the last American invasion that actually dismantled the Iraqi army. So they now want to build up an army that's going to be in the interests of who? Of the West and the domination of the West. So these questions are never, are never discussed in the media. The media has never discussed thoroughly the question of, of Iran in these last few weeks, pointing out that Iran was the target in 1953 of a coup by the British and the Americans to overthrow a popular government that was elected and began to nationalize the oil interests. So all this, the media plays, a, in fact, a very despicable role. And in fact, uh, I want to say this, is that uh, around the news that was coming out this afternoon about um, the um, air crash in, in, in Iran, um, Evan Dyer on CBC was making outrageous statements based on information from Bellingcat. 
in which he said, and yes, and there's reports of uh, the Iranians bulldozing the air crash site to hide the evidence. And then in the next breath, he said, oh, but that's, of course, unverified. Well, then why would he say that in the first place? I mean, that shows the role of the media, in my opinion. Why would they say these things? Uh, they even, uh, last night, uh, when the news first emerged about the aircraft coming down, uh, they again went to Bellingcat, and Bellingcat was showing what it claimed to be were shrapnel on the fuselage, uh, which then the CBC itself said later turned out to be stones. Mm-hmm. So why is this inform- Why is these things uh, just put out there? Uh, it, it's, it's, it's incredible that the media behaves in this way. The Winnipeg event is taking place Portage in Maine, uh, noon Saturday, January 11th. Uh, any other details or maybe places people can go for uh, information or, or other resources? They can go to the uh, Facebook page of Peace Alliance Winnipeg. Uh, that's one. Uh, there's a Facebook page around tomorrow's event. Uh, I have to say the mobilization for the event uh, has been an ad hoc group committee come together of people, uh, mostly young people which is a very good sign that uh, people, young people are taking this concern. I think tomorrow's action it will be very important. No matter what its size, it'll be a very important statement that Canadians are getting organized um, to stop war and for real, you know, real truth and information about what's going on. Glenn Michael Chuck, uh, Chair of Peace Alliance Winnipeg, Treasurer of Canadian Peace Alliance. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Pepe Escobar is a veteran Brazilian journalist, a geopolitical analyst, and correspondent at large for Asia Times, based out of Hong Kong. He's written two recent articles highlighting the Qasem Soleimani assassination and its fallout. We had him on the show previously talking about the U.S. provocations in the Gulf of Oman this past summer, and he joins us now from uh, Paris, I believe. Pepe, uh, it's great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. Yes, I am in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I know in uh, one of your recent articles, you indicated uh, you had gotten, I believe it is your most recent article, you had gotten a heads up before Trump's speech uh, this last Wednesday from a highly placed intelligence source that Trump wanted to de-escalate the situation. Are, are you satisfied, given recent events, that is indeed the case? Well, first of all, uh, I'm satisfied that my source was 100% correct. Uh, I trusted it. I used this source sparingly before. Uh, U.S. Intel, very well placed, excellent connections. Uh, It's a mutual understanding, mutual trust, because um, he respects what I do and I respect what he does. And I had sent him a detailed question very early in the morning, waiting for an answer throughout the day. came out in four paragraphs, uh, basically outlining all the reasons why Trump would uh, back off, in fact. Uh, many of them we knew about, and especially after what uh, transpired on Sunday in Iraq during that absolutely extraordinary historic parliamentary session in Baghdad, where uh, Prime Minister Al Mahdi detailed how the whole story behind the assassination of Soleimani was something that was ignored by virtually everybody which was that the Trump administration had requested him, al-Mahdi, to be the messenger between uh, possible peace negotiation between Saudi Arabia and Iran. 
So the Saudis had sent a message through um, uh, uh, Premier Mahdi to Tehran. Soleimani came, was, uh, in fact, he came to Baghdad from Damascus on a normal carrier flight, uh, bringing the response from Tehran to that proposal by the Saudis to have a meeting with Mahdi in that morning, uh, a few hours late, in fact, a few hours later uh, after the uh, the drone strike, right? Mm. So uh, Mahdi revealed this to parliament in detail uh, on Sunday in that parliamentary section. And obviously the immediate result was that vote, still non-binding of course, to expel all US forces from Iraq. And, and uh, obviously when you explain something like this, which is not only a direct interfe- American interference on Iraq's sovereignty, but this we are used to it uh, for decades now, by the way. But the fact that uh, the Americans kill a diplomatic envoy on Iraqi soil, this is extremely serious. In, in terms of uh, defining uh, the rules of the UN, defining the, uh, the the statute of Vienna, any measure of international relations, and it was great that we finally had that story. So that required uh, some tweaking mm. <laughs> in terms of the American uh, response. And then on Monday, this is something that I put on my social network, not not in an article. There was a really really weird secret, in fact, totally secret meeting at the White House with uh, the brother of MBS, uh, Prince, uh, uh, the other Prince Salman, by the way, uh, Robert O'Brien and Trump himself discussing, uh, obviously they were discussing the fact that Saudi Arabia was involved in this negotiation from the beginning, and they had to come up with another, uh, in fact, with another spin, with a different narrative. And that's when they went on overdrive with the narrative that uh, uh, Soleimani was planning attacks on uh, American forces and American diplomats all across the Middle East, which is absolute bullshit because there's no evidence. Mm. And and even uh, CENTCOM already said that one day maybe it will reveal the evidence. And what we know from intel sources, some of them American, is that most probably this was a drone recording concocted by the Israelis, in fact. And this was sold to Pompeo, and Pompeo sold the idea to Trump, and then Trump ordered the hit on Soleimani. So all this is it's beyond murky, of course. It's very, very dodgy. It's very nasty. But this was before the most important event of the week, which was the Iranian retaliation, which was not retaliation for the hit on Soleimani and on Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, also very, very important. Uh, second in command of Hashd al-Shabi, I met him in Baghdad uh, slightly over two years ago. He, he spent one afternoon, a small group of us independent journalists explaining everything about Hashd al-Shabi, very respected uh, all over Iraq, uh, p- protected by uh, the Iraqi Minister of Defense and the Prime Minister's Office. They are part of the, the Iraqi uh, official military forces, Ashtar Shabi. And we have an Iranian and an Iraqi commanders fighting Daesh, all the declinations of ISIS, Daesh, al-Nusra, al-Qaeda, all those uh, Salafi jihadi crazies in Syrian territory, in Iraqi territory, killed by the Americans on Iraqi territory. So this in itself is is already 
ext- extremely serious, right? But the response, the Iranian response was uh, a very calibrated. I would say it was a masterpiece of uh, military targeting and being very subtle as well, because the most important part was not not, not exactly pinpointing and with extreme air accuracy, the target in, uh, um, in the American military base, in fact, was to send a message, was symbolic, uh, which is something, if you don't understand Persian culture, you won't understand, you won't understand the dimension of this. It's whole like a, a shot across the bow, is that? Yeah, shot, no, no, a shot across the bow, but much more sophisticated than that. It was sending a, a direct, of course, graphic, of course, but also indirect message saying, look, we have uh, everything that we need in terms of hardware to target anything that you have in Iraq. And in fact, all, all across Southwest Asia, the whole region, we are just sending a message saying that we can target whenever we want and the way we want it. We don't want to kill American forces. That's why we try to minimize uh, American casualties to the max. We targeted buildings, but pay attention to what we're doing. And uh, if you want to escalate, we're ready for it, which is basically a graphic demonstration of what the the Iranians had been saying for the past at least four or five months. Yeah. Uh, well, Sharif himself as prime minister, um, indirectly by Ayatollah Khamenei, and directly by IRGC commanders everywhere. Everywhere, we mm-hmm. are ready for war. Every time that I talk to the Iranian Ministry of Foreign Relations these past months, when I would send them questions, they will always say, "It doesn't matter. We're okay. We're ready for war." And in fact, they have been ready for war for decades. Mm-hmm. In fact, so. Uh, this is something that, uh, in, in terms of the Pentagon actually seeing this um, <laughs> live in one of their bases, uh, it, it's uh, it's so easy to imagine how startled they were. You just needed to look at the stone-faced expressions of the generals behind Trump when Trump basically proclaimed victory for the moment and exited the stage. Yeah, this is what, this is what happened uh, this past Wednesday, right? Yeah, it was quite so, conciliatory. It, I mean, it wasn't a declaration of war. It was uh, no, relatively, not. yeah. And uh, well, I uh, uh, after what my source had sent me uh, on Wednesday, on Wednesday morning, in fact, he, he, Wednesday morning uh, European time, in fact, uh, I was pretty confident that they would have to back off because the reasons were. Uh, overwhelming mm. in terms of Iranian uh, military power, in terms of uh, the threats of, okay, if you target uh, us, is, is Hezbollah is going to target Israel, and we ourselves in Iran are going, are going to target Israel and uh, Abu Dhabi as well. In fact, there was a, 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 an indirect, <laughs> a direct indirect message that uh, if Iranian soil was um, hit, uh, the retortion would, get, uh, would be against Haifa in Israel and Dubai in the Emirates. Hmm. So th- this was only one of their mess- also messages uh, before Trump spoke. And, of course, the fact that uh, uh, if the Pentagon wanted to escalate, uh, the only certified way that they w- the response would be minimized would be to send a uh, technical nuclear weapon which I'm not sure anybody was contemplating at this stage. Uh, 
Mm. Even though the neocons, uh, as well know, uh, they are on a bomb Iran campaign since the Bush, the first Bush administration. I think it's important yeah. to highlight that Trump is not acting alone. This is not just you know some something that uh, he's come up with just off the top of his head. There are these people behind him within the Washington intelligence bureaucracy, the, the neocons, uh, not uh, as well as the, the pro-Israeli lobby, of course, that would like to see Iran subdued. So. Um, you know, if Trump is is you know intent as as your intelligence sources indicated, and the events seem to suggest, is himself intent on backing away from the precipice and and attempting to potentially try to find a face saving way of normalizing relations with Iran. Uh, do you see other elements in the background successfully pushing him to continue the escalation anyway? His his own instincts, Michael. In fact, because uh, uh, this is something we have learned. Uh, for the past few months from uh, sources in New York that did business with Trump and know him personally. He doesn't want to stay in the Middle East or in the greater Middle East for that matter. He would love to bring back the troops. This this is his own personal uh, opinion. Bring back the troops from Syria, from Iraq, and from especially from Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, uh, it's basically a matter of uh, keeping those... Um, uh, lines uh, for the CIA, the opium lines, uh, or, or the red line, like uh, Seymour Hersh uh, qualified years ago, to finance CIA black ops. From uh, Trump's own perspective, there's no oil in Afghanistan, so he's not interested, you know. And the oil in Syria, as well, know that he said we're going to stay to, to take care of the oil, is a negligible quantity compared to Iraq, of course. For the deep state, is another story. If you have, eventually, uh, it's hard to tell at the moment, and it's very, very unlikely because the Pentagon and Deep State are going to fight this uh, tooth, nail, you name it. You know, they they will never uh, admit to leaving Iraq completely because this is the end of the, the past 20 years, in fact, the past 30 years of American policy vis-a-vis -vis Iraq. It has to be occupied or semi-occupied or with uh, trustworthy puppets inside that can be, uh, you know, uh, set alight anywhere. And that's a very, very ambiguous relationship with ISIS Dash, which was basically to let them lose and not do much against ISIS Dash inside Iraq. So can you imagine abandoning this 30-year uh, this policy from one day to another and retreating? No, for the Pentagon and Deep State, and the CIA, of course, anathema. For yeah. Trump, is not so important. If we if we cannot stay there and keep the oil, we might as well leave, right? And he said so, more or less. He said so, in fact, uh, explicitly in his uh, victory lap. Uh, America doesn't need that oil. I caught that. <laughs> I caught that. And well, you know, let's let, let's just talk about that oil uh, that statement there because I I was also reminded from a previous article you read uh, and, and a previous conversation we had that the Iran still has the ability to shut down the Straits of Hormuz and limit oh, the nice. uh, a significant amount of oil moving out of the Persian Gulf and and so I was wondering if that that statement is is some sort of a I mean it, it might be some sort of a, a, a hidden message in that regard but as you explained I mean this, th th this that, that shutting 
the down of the Straits of Hormuz, it's the equivalent of a financial nuke, regardless of whether U.S. Exactly. is sustain can you know protect has enough oil uh, that's uh, they don't have to rely on these external force sources. So if you could just maybe briefly explain that mechanism. There. Yes, and uh, it's a it's a good question because this particular information has been relayed to Trump in person by bankers and the masters of the universe. Uh, people like Jamie Dimon, Larry Fink, Stephen Schwartzman, etc. They know everything there is to know about the consequences of uh, shutting down the Strait of Hormuz. Uh, it doesn't matter how, which reason, you name it. If the Strait of Hormuz is closed, and we have 22% of oil not transiting, through, uh, not transiting through Ormuz. We have a collapse of the whole derivative pile. And these people who deal with derivatives, people at Goldman Sachs ha have already gained this for, I would say, over a year now. And in fact, the number one uh, estimate, if I remember well, was by Goldman Sachs people. Over a year ago, they're saying, oh, look, if this happens, oil maybe can spike to 200 and some other people inside Goldman Sachs will say, no, it could go to 500 in over a week. So uh, uh, our money, man, masters of the universe in the international turbo capitalist system, they know this very well. And they can pick up the phone and talk to Trump directly and say, look, uh, do you do you want to destroy the not only your obviously your reelection chances, but our economy, the economy that we rule, in fact, <laughs> through uh, through their uh, numerous uh, dodgy uh, financial mechanisms. So I'm sure he got this message as well. So, you know, this added to the Pentagon's discomfort and those stony faces behind him uh, during the victory <laughs> lap. Can, can you imagine? You had too, too many variables and the U.S. is not in control of any of them. Any of them. Um, the way the axis of resistance, uh, let's say uh, Iran, Iraq, Syria and Hezbollah are very well coordinated. The fact that uh, uh, if if we analyze this as killing the head of the snake, let, let's let's assume uh, it's a horrible metaphor. But let's assume thinking in American terms that Soleimani was the head of the snake and they eliminated. No, they did not. Because the snake is a multi—it's a multi-headed hydra. In fact, the axis of resistance is very well coordinated. Uh, it's not only about uh, a Shiite crescent like uh, that. Sorry, fellow King Abdullah uh, of Jordan named it uh, in the past decade. It's much more complex than that, and it's supported directly and indirectly by Russia and China the most important players in the 21st century because they want this uh, interconnection of the Shiite crescent or axis of resistance, Iran, Iraq, Syria, uh, Hezbollah, all the way to the Eastern Mediterranean as a very important hub of Eurasia integration, which means this uh, interconnection between the Chinese New Silk Roads and the Russian notion of greater Eurasia. Russia is becoming every day 
the most important interlocutor of all these nations in the Middle East, be they Sunni uh, governments, uh, be they Wahhabi uh, demented governments like uh, House of Saud, or be they Shiite-led governments like in Iran or Iraq. And uh, one of the extra, there are so many reasons, one of the extra reasons of America's fury is, uh, and that was detailed by Prime Minister Mahdi himself as well on Sunday, was that uh, Trump was absolutely furious that Mahdi was striking deals with China. Indeed. And then he explained why. The Americans said, look, we could uh, help you to rebuild uh, Iraq infrastructure, hydroelectric power, etc., but we want 50% of your oil sales, according to Prime Minister Mahdi. And he said, no way, this is extortion, it's a mafia thing. So he went to the Chinese and obviously they clinched lots of deals with the Chinese, including especially the Chinese speciality, which is rebuilding infrastructure. They're going to use probably the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank for it as well, apart from uh, direct loans from, from Chinese banks. So this was an extra reason that for, for American fury, and this is something that that Trump or the neocons or uh, Republicans that force him to to start a war against Iran cannot control as well. And the prime minister in his speech also indicated that there had been threats that if he didn't back out of that agreement, that there would yes. be sniper fire okay. and then mobilizing protests against him, and then and and then a, you know potentially a, 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 you know as threats to the even to the security personnel, which appears to have included. Uh, in this case, Suleimani. Absolutely. And uh, this is all uh, intimately connected, in fact. Uh, on many levels, we can see uh, the assassination of Suleimani as responding to this uh, Iraqi reluctance to be uh, <laughs> bribed by, by American power, right? And that includes the fact that uh, they knew that Muhandis went to the airport to pick up Soleimani. Usually it's not him. When Soleimani goes to Baghdad, usually is an, is, is, is another official that uh, is sent to greet him. So and this, this time was uh, Muhandis, which is a very, very important. He is the, we, we can say that Muhandis was the number one Iraqi commander uh, fighting against ISIS Daesh and uh, the variants of Al-Qaeda, Al-Nusra, you name it, you know. Mm. So they knew. They knew that they were together from the beginning. So they wanted to intimidate at the same time Iran with Soleimani and Iraq with um, Muhandis, this time sending a, ma a direct message to, to Mahdi. But uh, to prove once again that uh, I would not even say uh, American strategists because this is a show so childish. This proves that the people who devise these policies and then sell them to Trump, they have absolutely no clue about how Iran works, how the power system in Iran works, how the Iraqi government works, how uh, the relationships between uh, uh, different militias in Iraq and the central government back now work. They don't know anything. Well, they, well, this is something for, for me. It's normal because I've seen these people on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan. They are always clueless. Always. Yeah, always. and I, but I the mean, fact that managed to convince convince Trump about it via Pompeo. Uh, the best information that we have is that Pompeo sold to Trump the idea of hitting Soleimani. 
Yes, and that uh, was a huge mistake. In fact, uh, it, it would seem to be a huge game changer in terms of yes. uh, the, uh, the U.S. Uh, continuing to prevail in the Middle East region. I, I think it's important to, to, to give our listeners an understanding of who Soleimani was and why uh, his uh, his death has just triggered such a, a huge uh, uh, reaction on the part of the population. Millions, millions of people in Iran, uh, it, five to seven million in Tehran alone showing up at his funeral. And, you know, that that, that seems to be, yet Western media coverage, including in Canada, they, they just assert this guy was a, you know, a major menace, has blood on his hands and so on. Could you maybe help our listeners understand, like, who he was, what his significance was in the region and why? Yeah, in, in Iran, you, he was a national hero. And across the Shiite world, Shiite crescent and axis of resistance, he was the, the great, uh, let's say, the great unif- Muslim unifier of, of the, the postmodern era. Let's put it this way. Uh, not only a military commander, but uh, a fabulous strategist and a very good politician as well. So he was even, uh, there was even, a, there were very serious rumors, in fact, that he might succeed Ayatollah Khamenei uh, in the near future. Or he could even make a, uh, uh, have a shot at the presidency after Rouhani. He, wa- he is... He was, he is, and will continue to be the most important uh, uh, diplomatic, military, political uh, figure in Iran. Mm-hmm. And he was also very popular in Iraq because the Iraqis know how important his strategies was in terms of uh, g- g- giving, you know, uh, laying out the framework for the different forces that were fighting ISIS Daesh and uh, remnants of, of Al-Qaeda in Iraq would conduct themselves. Same thing with Hezbollah. And same thing, of course, in Syria, where, where he was coordin- he, he was the supreme coordinator of the different uh, uh, militias in Syria, including you know, some with Afghans and Pakistanis as well, that they were fighting against ISIS Daesh in Syria. So it's very significant. When you saw the there was this uh, amazing briefing by the head of uh, the aerospace division of the IRGC yesterday. Uh, when he gave his briefing, there were a lot of flags behind him. And these flags are of all the most important military factions or mini armies fighting together as part of the axis of resistance against basically Wahhabi, Salafi, Jihadi terrorists supported directly and indirectly by the United States. So we had the uh, Houthi flag over there. We had the the flag of one of uh, of the Afghan uh, brigade, of the Pakistani brigade, uh, of the the Hashd al-Shabi in Iraq, which is a... So there are different uh, strands of the Hashd al-Shabi as well. So Soleimani was a sort of super coordinator of all these... uh, on the on the battleground, of course, yeah. in Iraq, in Syria, of all these uh, militias uh, and all these all these fighting forces against terrorism, and at the same time, he was an excellent diplomat. Uh, for instance, he had a very good personal relationship with Putin. 
because obviously he met a lot of heads of state. Uh, we don't know if he actually have, if he ever met Xi Jinping personally. Pro probably not. But he met with Putin many times. Uh, he had excellent relationship not only with uh, Shoigu, uh, the Minister of Defense of Russia, but with politicians as well. So, so he was respected as this multi. Uh, multi-level character, really larger than life. So, and and he always uh, was very humble. He's not like these generals that like to pose with a, a Hollywood patina, you know, or like, or like they are auditioning for a Hollywood role in the future. He was always very humble. Uh, in fact, uh, his will, which was largely, in fact, all over the, uh, the Middle East, the Southwest Asia, people, even Sunnis, they were praising his will because he left a very simple will to his wife. You know, please bury me in a cemetery with just my name as a soldier. No more phrases, nothing else. You know, yeah. very humble man, very simple man, uh, very pious, of course. Uh, and, and all that as an example to young generations uh, of Yemenis, of Lebanese, of Iraqis was, wow. It, it, it went way beyond the fact that he was Iranian, way beyond. It's, it's like um, the equivalent of Grand Ayatollah Sistani. He's Iranian. Uh, he's uh, the most important religious authority in Iraq, but he's respected all, all, all across the Middle East yeah. as well. Well, of as course, a, we do also hear uh, stories. Uh, again, this is coming from the press stores. Press, uh, you know, Western press about uh, the the deaths of uh, of Americans uh, as, as part of the the, the blood the blood of Americans on his hands. But uh, no, 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 this was this was never proved. Uh, what, yeah. Look, we could we could go on forever with yeah. documents <laughs> with this thing. No, no, it was never proved. And these deaths <laughs> between commas, they may have been especially of uh, contractors which is uh, the American uh, terminology for mercenaries, in fact. Mm -hmm. These are no contractors. There's a legion of American mercenaries all across the so-called greater Middle East, especially in uh, Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Uh, and different uh, uh, fighting forces or militias, or they obviously they could have gone straight against these people because they know the role of these people. Uh, it's to bring even more mercenaries, is to weaponize uh, a Salafi jihadi outfits. Uh, they were weaponizing, for instance, the extinct free Syrian army. Uh, they weaponize and help uh, factions of al-Nusra. So, and, and the people in Syria, especially, they knew about, this, uh, about these mercenaries very well. It's the same thing in Iraq. So, uh, and to, to, to blame all this on Soleimani, obviously, it's the easiest to, ah, because he was overseeing and supervising everything. No, but uh, all these fighting forces, they had their own uh, fighting tactics as well, and they would pick their targets. <laughs> it was not that Soleimani had a list of targets every day that he would distribute by fax to everybody. No, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to thank you very much. These thank uh, you. great insights into these uh, historic events. Thanks for making the time. Thanks very much. Uh, thanks, everybody. Okay. We've been speaking to Pepe Escobar, veteran, Brazilian journalist, geopolitical analyst, and correspondent at large for Asia Times. His articles on the Iran-U.S. crisis are posted to a number of online platforms, including Global Research. 
Listeners who wish to get more details on the Pan-Canadian Day of Action Against War and Sanctions on Iran can visit the site peacenotwar.ca, visit the Facebook page for Canadian Peace Alliance, or email info at peacenotwar.ca. Once again, the January 11th event in Winnipeg takes place at the corner of Portage and Main at noon, local time, on the northwest side. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our program every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download our program from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week. 